Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. One of our guests on today's podcast is speaking on a very emotive subject, namely the prison sentences that ought to apply to child murderers. Kieran Mullen, the Tory MP for Crewe and Nantwich, will tell us why he believes the new law bringing in whole life tariffs for child killers falls far short on what he calls the intellectual snobbery towards people that think longer sentences serve justice. But first, with the political focus on the state of the British economy, let's focus for a few minutes on what the horrendous outlook for the coming months means for us in the North. With the government putting all its resources into growing the economy nationally in the longer term, the next few months look like being very tough for millions of families and local businesses. In the North East specifically, where, let's not forget, child poverty rates are rising faster than anywhere else in the country, the latest data shows that unemployment rates have improved of late, but, perhaps confusingly, the number of people actually in jobs has fallen, and the number of people classed as economically inactive, so neither working nor looking for a job, is also going up. So, how well prepared is the North East for the coming economic storm? Let's ask one of its best-known business owners, John Elliott, the chairman of County Durham-based EBAC Limited, described as the only manufacturer in the UK of dehumidifiers and washing machines. Listeners might be familiar with John from his various TV appearances or leading the North East Says No campaign against the Regional Assembly, or the fact that in 2012 he handed ownership of his company over to a trust which must maintain all its work locally. But he's got a new venture, a podcast, which we'll hear more about later. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to have you on. So, just as a general question to start with, as a prominent Northeast businessman, uh, how have the last few months been for your business and how concerned are you about the future? Very difficult. Uh, the last two years have been more difficult than I can ever remember. Eback is actually 50 years old. Um, and I can't remember as difficult a time as this with so many different problems. Supply change, recruiting people, it's, and it's not just us, it's across the board, uh, in fact, across the world. So it's been tough. Um, the banks aren't that supportive, unfortunately. They've got their own agenda. Um, we've got economic policy in the UK, which is useless, uh, but it's been out for 30 years, so that shouldn't surprise us too much. The only thing is we normally get away with it because the private sector does a good job. But at the moment, I just can't believe what a mess we're in. And I can't believe that they don't see how easy it's to solve it. If, we, if you looked at a household or a business, you'd have two years with income very low, you'd expect a change in lifestyle. Yet the government wants us to continue as if nothing had happened. We've looked at things objectively. With, with, in my view, there's things in life that you've got to decide. Some things are essential, some things are desirable. Do the essential and, and pause the, the desirable. You know, I would say HS2 is desirable rather than essential. Now, something more provocative and more local is we're going to spend $120 million on Darlington Station. Is that essential? No way. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's desirable, maybe. Why not spend the same money on investing in industrial manufacturing capacity, something that will make, add real value? You know, I've heard economists, well-known economists, saying things like, it's right to borrow money now because the interest rates are low. What a stupid comment to make. You know, 
you don't realize, and I've heard economists say we don't have to pay it back. How can that, somebody be that naive? And this is a lot of economists have this view. Let's borrow money because the interest rates are low. That's the mentality of a 15-year-old boy, isn't it? Not somebody who's running the country. John, just to, just to butt in, now it sounds, so it sounds like you're, you're arguing against the government spending money on infrastructure, on infrastructure projects like stations and rail lines, which I think might possibly put you at odds with uh, some, some northern, northern leaders. I'm actually arguing in favour of common sense and get the economy right. You know, let's not pine in the sky ideas about being high technology other things. Do the boring things that you and I need every day. What's essential of our lives? Food on the table, a roof over our head, a shirt on our backs. Those things are essential. And those things done by people who don't need degrees need to learn to work with the hands. Most of the people that make the economy strong do things with the skills they learn on the job. I've talked about bricklayers, joiners, plumbers, people who work in factories, people who work on farms, people in hospitality. Those are the jobs that have the real value. And yet we're paranoid about having some sort of high-tech ideas, you know, that, that makes the laptop quicker. You know, we've got to wake up. I followed a truck today in Bishop Auckland sweeping the street. It wasn't that dirty. Couldn't we cut back on that and focus on things that are essential? The essential thing is to balance the book. We've got to manufacture more things in the UK rather than import them. We don't have the cash to import them. When are we going to wake up to that instead of these pie-in-the-sky ideas about high-value added? Good, what's a good job? One that's well-paid? No, the one that gives us a good output. That's a good job. Not that, I, not that I have strong views on this, mind. I can see that you do. And is it not the case, though, that in areas like the North East, the, what they call the product, productivity of the North East compared to other regions is a long way down. So the average worker in the North East is working a set number of hours, but the amount of value they contribute to the economy is less and it's and there's a whole load of reasons for that this is what people say that you know lack of, lack of relative skills and lack of transport links etc the measurements are wrong what we measure is gdp correct how many yeah. hours it took to produce gdp gdp doesn't it doesn't involve the value added it's money spent if the government builds a school for 20 million pounds gdp goes up by 20 million pounds is it worth 20 million pounds probably not you know we don't make we have the right measurements that's the starting point Parallel about GDP. We've got to look at value added. We've got to look at how do we get the economy in balance? How do we get that's what we've got to deal with? We can't rely on imports or immigrants. We've got to, we in the UK have got to do more what things that we need, essential things, not the desirable things that we might need or that are nice to have. How do we do that in, in your view? What, what would you be doing right now? Um, divide things into things what's essential, what's desirable. The essential thing is to balance the books. Now, people for years have said that doesn't matter because we can keep borrowing money. That's ludicrous. Yet, you know, and yet professional, well-educated economists keep saying, borrow money because it's cheap. That's the wrong attitude. We've got to balance the books. It's very simple. Is that the problem? It's too simple for these clever people. So balancing the books, how do we do that? Cutting, cutting public services or like not spending money on sort of infrastructure and things like that? No, we've got to, well, we could, could bet the public services, but make them more efficient. Deliver services and, and look at the real, you know, we've got to do all those things. We've got to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. But lots of people who can't take care of themselves are drawing benefits and not working, not adding any value. There's too many people staying in school that don't want to be there because they're forced to stay till the 18 uh, rather than get a job and add value. You know, we just, it's the common sense things. It's the belief that if you don't have a degree or three A-levels in, in um, uh, GSEs, A-levels rather, you're not really competent, and yet most jobs don't need those things. What have we been short of recently? Economists, politicians, or lorry drivers? You know, we, our people, we've had difficulty recruiting people to work in a factory. You know, and those are things that have the real value. It's not as romantic 
as, as the, but it's what we need to do. And it's, you've got to start by believing in that and start cutting back on things that we don't need. We can do without flowers in the, on the roundabouts for the next two years. You know, cut out, if, it, if this was domestic and you had two years where your income was down, you wouldn't borrow money to buy, to buy a, an extra extension on your house, would you? And that's what we're doing with the HS2. We can't afford to pay the way, yet we're getting things that are useful in the future, not necessarily desirable. Sounds like, John, you're one of these members of the anti-growth coalition that I'm hearing about from Liz Truss. You don't, you don't, you don't, want, don't want the economy to grow. I'm absolutely in favour of growth, but not growth for its own sake. Not growing things that don't add any value. I'm increasing that in value, not growth. That's like a business that turnover's gone up, but profit's going down. That's, that's foolish. I, I want growth in, in useful output. Use, use our people more effectively to produce things that you and I require on a day to day basis. And currently we've got to import them. And we haven't got, money, we haven't got the money to buy them. So we, so we buy them on debt that we can't repay. We've got to start balancing the books. And that means we've got to make more things that we currently import, like working machines. I, I could see, I could see why you would mention that. So, um, so looking more widely across the northeast, and I know you, you keep an eye on what's going on around the region. I mean, are you confident that things are moving in the right direction, or because of oh. you know, what you just said now, do you, do you think things are going in the wrong direction? We don't, we don't face reality. You see, this government does well, not because of the, despite the government, not because of it. Now, I'm going back thirty years. It's not party political. Is um, you know, we do well because Tesco compete with Morrison's. And give us fantastic service, give us a good supply of goods at competitive prices. That's what we need. Compet competition. That's what the health service lacks, competition. You know, to get to improve performance, you need competition, fair competition. And we've got to stop being part. We see jobs as a means of giving people income to spend money. The purpose of a job is to deliver something useful. And what do you think of the current government? I mean, we're talking on Thursday afternoon and the uh, obviously the mini budget a couple of weeks ago, didn't go down very well with the market, but it, we're, we're hearing talk that some of the proposed ta- tax cuts that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have outlined might be about to be uh, reversed or watered down. I mean, the, the economic markets don't like it, but I mean, what do you think of their, of their, of their approach? Is it going to pay dividends in the end? I think their objectives are absolutely right, growth, the right kind of growth, but you see, we've all got to accept as well, and most people will accept this. Times are tough. We've got to pay more taxes. We've got to be realistic. Uh, and we've got to, oh, what we've got to do is consume more, consume less and deliver more. Balance the books. Uh, and re- reducing taxes now, to me, seems crazy. If anything, we should be increasing it. We need to pay off the debt. And all of us have got to work a bit harder, yeah, to, to pay those debts. We can't, we've got to face reality. The reality is the com- this country would be bankrupt if it was a business. We keep borrowing money or printing money, which is not a long-term solution. We've got to balance the books. We've got to say, you know, we've got, we as the UK, we consume more than we produce. We spend more than we earn. And we've done it for 30 years. And people say it's okay because we can borrow cheap money. I've just found that irritating. And now those, that's coming home to roost. Those chickens are coming up to roost now because interest rates have gone higher. I think if interest rate goes up 1%, it costs this government £25 billion pounds a year. What a, you know, and we borrow money, we don't need to borrow it. We've just got to get more people doing useful work so that we can balance the books. That's the number one objective, not growth for the sake of it. Build another school for 20 million pounds, you've got another 20 million pound GDP and people working. But are they adding any value? Not really. 
So are you finding that you're struggling to recruit people in in, in the various jobs that you, you have going at EBAC? Is that is that an, a, a, a sort of specific issue for you? It's mainly direct work. It's got actually has improved quite a bit. I think it's the pandemic has changed things. People's views have changed. Their life values have changed. And maybe that's a good thing in the longer term. Um, but certainly, and, and this is across the country. It's actually across your, it's across the world. In fact, it's, it's the same problems everywhere. We're short of the people who do the useful work um, because they're not glamorous jobs, and they're not they're not sort of good jobs in the, in the in the terms. I think a good job is what something that suits the person and delivers something useful. That's a good job, not one that pays well or overpays people. So I guess maybe that moves us on to the next uh, topic, which is uh, Brexit. Obviously, you uh, are a uh, you, you have been a firm advocate for Brexit, and I, I assume you still you still are. But quite a lot of economists that you see now are saying that leaving the European Union and the aftershocks of that, are, you know, it being harder to trade with our nearest neighbours, that is contributing to the difficulties the UK is having. Obviously, you're an ardent Brexiteer. Are you being impacted by any of this? And do, do you still believe the benefits of Brexit will outweigh uh, any difficulties that you might be having? Of course, Brexit's got costs. Have you changed something in life, whether it's in your personal life or in business, there's always a cost. So you've got to make sure the cost is worth a long-term benefit. And my view has not changed. And this is my view, not the company's view. And my view, see, and I'm more interested in what's right for the UK and what's right for EBAC. That's number one. Um, so if it's tough for EBAC, tough. And I think the European Union conceptually is flawed. This idea of an extra layer of politicians, our friends who are totally incompetent, to run things, it adds nothing but cost and complication makes things worse. You know, the concept is wrong. It's not right. You cannot, in my opinion, you can't have the same currency for Greece and Germany. Each economic block should have its own currency because that's, that, that should be, its value should change on, based on your performance. That would then regulate things so it gets even. Um, so the concept of the European Union, in my opinion, it's a one size fits all. How can you have the same import regulations for France, Greece and Romania? It can't be right for all of them. You know, it's, it's one size fits all and everything. It's another layer of bureaucrats. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense as a concept. Uh, it, it, it suits politicians. They want to be big. They want, we want something big so they can be big as the Americans. I don't want to be big. I want to be effective. And I think Europe's an important place. But the European Union as a concept is flawed. It's, it's like the USSR was, and, and that didn't work either. So that's my reason for Brexit. It, there'd be some short-term costs, but I think it's just conceptually flawed. When do you think we'll start seeing the uh, the benefits of Brexit? Because I think there's a few people who would say that we're not, we haven't really seen much evidence of, uh, of any benefits yet, but you, you're, you're confident they will still come? We've seen, I'm not confident because we, you know, I actually, this, I'm, I made one statement. Uh, uh, by the way, if it stopped the European Union, I wouldn't have lost a minute's sleep because the, the bigger problem is the politicians that run our country and run the Western world. There's something wrong with the system. I think it's flawed. It just, I mean, demonstrating it now, it's a flawed concept. It just, it's, it's, it's 400 years old and it needs to be changed. We've got to get a system that represents people really rather than not. You know, we just don't, there's something wrong, in my opinion, with the system that elects the people. You know, um, it's not working. The country's badly run. It always has been. We've done well because of the private sector, people like Tesco, people like JCB do a good job. Um, the government's poor. It, everything it runs, it runs poorly. Um, we've got to find a better way of finding the people to run the country. There's better people in this country now who can run the country better, and you're not doing it. And it's the most important job out there, isn't it? And Brexit, but I mean, Brexit's not going to solve that problem, is it? Of course not. No, I actually, I actually said 
If someone said to me, we're going to get a better way of picking politicians in Westminster, but you've got to stay in the European Union, I've stayed in the European Union. The bigger problem is the quality of the politicians. It's not the quality, it's just that they're the wrong people. You know, because think how we, we do it. 40 million people who most have got no experience in recruitment are picking the managing director of the country. Now, are those the right people to do it? Have you got the right information, the right knowledge? No, not really. Um, so how can it succeed? It's inevitable going to fail. And then we, we've got a choice of two people. They're both bad, so we pick the least worst, possibly. Uh, and then the one that doesn't get the job spends the next five years trying to make the fellow got the job fail so he can get the job. Crazy. Imagine running a company, a company like that. We've got to find a better way. That's the number one problem. We've got to, The problem is we, the people running the country aren't really good. So what's the alternative? Let's think about it. Let's think about it. Let's have, let's have a cascade system. So instead, or even a jury system. So in other words, people in the constituency pick people from the constituency that they know they consider to be competent, whatever that means, and put them forward. And then those people go forward and meet, and one of them goes forward. So it cascades up from the people because the people who are voting for the, the prime minister don't really understand the job, and they don't really understand. If you if I'm recruiting a managing director, it isn't based on a television program. It's based on interviewing it, it's a, it's a detailed job spec, it's talking to him, it's looking at references. That's how you recruit a senior person. And that's not what we do by voting. You know, and even crazier still in Australia, they force people to vote. So people who don't care, haven't got a clue, have got to vote. Are they going to pick the right people? No way. So you'd reduce the, the impact of voting, you'd make it ha- harder for people to vote for their leaders and easier easy for them to be appointed? Is that what you're no, saying? I make it, no, no, I want people to vote for people that... You think of, ask everybody in Bishop Orton constituency, think of people in the constituency that you believe have got the ability or the wisdom to, right, and get, you put those people forward. If you know those people, you can judge them better, can't you? And then those people get together and they actually, from their midst, they pick people to go forward. And then those people go to Parliament and they don't run things. They recruit a managing director for education. And they set the, set the strategic strategy with them and then they do the operations. You know, it, it, the chance of the exchequer should be a qualified accountant, shouldn't he? A financial director, top one in the country rather than a, an MP. You know, and, and, and even the parties can't agree with themselves. And then, the, and Wednesday afternoon is a joke, isn't it? That, that quick prime minister's question type is a joke. Can you imagine running a company like that? No way. And it's exactly the same. We've got to think about how to make it better. That's the first thing to accept is the current system isn't very good. Let's find a better way. And that's one suggestion from me. Cascade up from the people. So the people propose people that they know. And now that cascades up to get a group of people who can then set the strategy of the company. So it's interesting that you're talking about power flowing up from local areas, because I recall that you uh, were one of the leading figures in the North East Says No campaign against the regional assembly alongside uh, Dominic Cummings, I think, actually, who was heavily involved. And But you'll be aware that the North East is on the verge of signing a devolution deal that will hand over powers and resources to a metro mayor who will potentially cover the whole region from Berwick all the way down to uh, Barnard Castle. But you're sceptical about the benefits of devolution. Can you explain why that is? Well, I think it, I think it's fiddling while Rome burns. We've got to, look, we've got to sort the country out. We can, the North East, we will do well in the North East if the country does well. That's where we've got to start. We've got to get the country run by people who know how to run the country. That's number one. Fiddling around at the edges, to me, is just, in my view is, you're a country or not. If you're a country, you don't need devolution. You need one set of people who run the country, and that, that and then they manage the whole country. Of course, they change the 
performances appropriate to the areas, but you've got one system. To have two systems, in other words, it's like the business of EVAC, right? We've got four businesses within this group. If one of the businesses is doing badly, so we bring some other people in who've got different views to me at the, at the EVAC to run it differently, you can't do that. You've got to be consistent. You can't have people with opposite views trying to run something lower down the chain. Devolution in, Scot in Scotland's useless. They should either become a country or join the rest of us on an equal basis. That's my opinion. And it could it'd be okay to have their own country, but it, the problem is it will cost a lot more. You know, so why not? Why have those costs? It's because politicians like power. That's the big problem we've got. Politicians are the problem, and political parties. Is it not the case that, I mean, obviously Scotland, the devolution situation in Scotland and, and Wales, they, they've got a lot more devolved powers than anyone in the North has, anyone like Andy Burnham, the mayor in Greater Manchester, or anyone like that. But what is what is being proposed in Northern England is that some of the powers and money that currently is held by central government, and they make decisions about Darlington or Leeds or Salford from a desk in Whitehall. And the argument for devolution is that it would be a lot better for these local areas if people who are based in the areas, like you know, like the people that you were talking about uh, about earlier, you know, pro prominent local figures could make those decisions instead of someone behind a desk in central London. I mean that's got that's gotta be that's gotta be right, hasn't well, it? Well I think you're painting a picture there which is a bit distorted sitting behind a desk. I'm I'm assuming they'd be careful of getting out. It's it's how corporate those people has the problem. You see, what do you think Marks and Spencer should have different board of directors for the north of England to the, for the country? No, you've got you've got to have the people at the top have got to run the whole thing. Then they devote, then they, they apply their management as appropriate to each area. You might need different things in the northeast than you do in the northwest, but you still got the same. We've all, we're all the same. We all need the same things. We, it's one. It's a country or not. You can't have a country in a country within a country. That just causes contradiction. You may have better people there than in Westminster, so you may be lucky. But the system needs to be changed. So the, the only thing that we'll do well in the northeast if the country does well. It's not about we almost whinge in the northeast and blame everybody else. We've got to take responsibility ourselves, actually, individually, not as a not as politically. But you've got to Westminster's got to good, do a good job for the whole country. Ben Houchin's a good guy, and the guy in Manchester's good. So they do a decent job. But they're not solving the problem. The problem is Westminster. I can see what you're saying. So you're, what you're you're arguing is that the the fundamentals of the political system need to be radically change. It's interesting to me that you, you don't think that devolution is at least part of the answer. I mean, just to give you an example of one possible benefit of devolution, like companies who want to invest, say, in Greater Manchester, a company might want to come in and they've got certain jobs that they want filling, but there aren't the people available in Greater Manchester to do those jobs because there aren't the right numbers of people who have the skills to do them. And what one of the benefits of devolution is that the, the mayor of that area could have control over what kids are taught in colleges. And so the skills that people come out of colleges with is matched up with the kind of jobs that they want to bring to a local area. And that, that, that central government is never going to be able to do that, are they? Anybody competent can do that. You can sit in a desk in China if you want. You can do that if you've got that, those facts. We're short of some skills, but then you improve those skills in that area. You don't need a local person to do that. You know, it's just it's just fiddling around with the edges. We've got to solve the problem of Westminster first, and it's got and you can't have two different governments in the same country. You're a country or you're not a country. If Scotland wants to be a country, so be it. If the North East wants to become a country, so be it. 
But you can't you can't have layers of management with different views, different political strategies. You can't have it. It just causes conflict and confusion. Luckily, we get some good people in those positions, like Ben Houchin. But that's just luck. Um, the system's wrong. We, we're fiddling with it. Get the system right. We need a better Westminster end of. Your ideal scenario is not that there would be regional mayors making decisions for local areas. You would get some kind of incredibly competent person, perhaps from a business background, who would basically be making the decisions for the whole country, which would include the northeast, the northwest. Absolutely right. And adapted to suit. We've all got the same needs, basically, but circumstances are different. You adapted. How do Marks and Spencer deal with it? They don't sell the same stuff in Bishop Bolton as they do in Chelsea, but it's the same philosophy. You've got to have one political philosophy that works. And then you've got to cascade the management down and make it appropriate. You've got to be, you've got to appropriate, appropriate for regions, but even within the Northeast, there's different regions and different needs. You know, there's not one single need, but we've all generally got the same needs uh, and adapt them to suit the circumstances. That's within a region as well. I think you're just fiddling around politicians, creating more politicians uh, and more confusion. Now, John, you've clearly got strong views on quite a lot of different issues. I can see that quite clearly. And you've got a new podcast series out called Spot On, where presumably you go into some of these uh, issues. Can you just tell, tell us a bit more about that? Well, none of them has been as good as this one, by the way. Um, <laughs> you're very kind. So, yeah, it, it just interviewing. I'm not a very good interviewer, actually. You're a very good interviewer. I'm not a very good interviewer. I'd rather be interviewed, actually. Then I can let it go, as it were. So I've interviewed various... Um, People, and some of those are good, actually, good people. We've had good people on, so that's one good thing about it. We talk about different things, about business, recruitment, all of those things. Um, yeah, it's called Spot On. It's on Spotify. Perhaps anyone who's listening to the Northern Agenda podcast, they can uh, get, search for Spot On on wherever they get their podcasts and have a have a listen. Um, John Elliott, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Now, the phrase a life sentence is a familiar one for anyone who follows reports of our most high profile criminal cases. But how often does a life sentence actually mean life? And in the case of offenders who carry out the most unimaginable act of violence, the murder of a child, should a life sentence actually mean life in prison with no prospect of release? That's the argument being made by Dr. Kieran Mullen, Tory MP for Crewe and Nantwich in Cheshire and a member of the Commons Justice Committee who says the government can and must do better on sentencing for child murderers. During a Westminster Hall debate this week, he highlighted the fact that people given a life sentence for murder generally serve an average of just 16 and a half years. And though the Conservative Party manifesto of 2019 meant that adults who commit the premeditated murder of a child will be given tougher sentences of life without parole, Dr Mullen argues that this does not go far enough. So, Kieran Mullen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So, just for people who aren't familiar with the law as it currently stands, can you explain what happens to child murderers at the moment in terms of sentencing? Well, as you said, it, it, it depends the circumstances. Uh, most of the most serious crimes in this country, you get given what's called a life sentence. And I think that that phrase in itself is quite misleading and, and doesn't help us understand our own justice system. Because when someone's set a life sentence, what that actually means is they're given a minimum amount of time they have to spend in prison. And that's anywhere from 15 to 30 years, sometimes a little higher. Um, but actually, on average, they spend about 16 and a half years in prison. And and uh, the life element of it, that's why it gets called a life sentence, is that in theory, they could be locked up for longer. 
for example, if, if the prison system, the probation service think that they are still dangerous, then they may well still be kept in prison. But very often they are eventually let out. Um, and there could be some good reasons for that. We don't want to keep everyone locked in prison for a very long time for no reason. But I think when it comes to the most serious crimes, I think we should keep people locked up for the rest of their lives. Because I think for me, that's what justice means when it comes to very, very serious crimes. You mentioned at the top of the of the, of the programme that we've changed the law now as a Conservative Party. We voted on it uh, and it came into power this year that if you conduct the murder of a child and there's a lot of significant premeditation involved. So in other words, if you planned it, if you really um, wasn't a spur of the moment thing, then you should now typically be given a whole life order is what they're called. And a whole life order means that you should never expect to be released. And they're quite a rare thing in our, our justice system, even though... A lot of people say to me, and you know, I'll have a lot of sympathy for this, that if you murder somebody else, if you take somebody else's life, then, then you should expect to spend the rest of your life in prison. So whilst I'm glad we've made that tiny move forward on, on child murder, I think actually, in reality, a lot of the cases involving child murder don't involve a lot of significant premeditation. I'll give you an example of what might be premeditation. Uh, for example, some of the cases that I've looked at, the police found that one of the murderers had been googling how to kill someone quickly and looking at things they could buy with the money they were going to steal from that person so they obviously really did think and plan about killing somebody i saw another case where uh, it was someone who uh, come across someone in the pub that they said they were going to kill and went back home and got a knife and came out and killed them so that's the sort of planning that you're looking at in the legal system when it comes to premeditation and actually some of the cases we see when it comes to children it doesn't tend to be like that it may be but it isn't often like that so i'm a bit worried that this positive step forward we've taken, bringing in these whole life orders for child murder are really not going to apply in that many circumstances. So you're worried it's setting too high a bar, basically, for, for that significant premeditation element to be to be triggered? Yes. And and I've been campaigning on the on the issue of tougher sentencing for a, for a few years now. And I spent a few years myself as a volunteer policeman. So, I, you know, I've cared about these issues for a long time. And I've gotten to work with affected families and one lady in particular I've worked with called Elsie Urie and her three children very young children were brutally murdered um quite a long time ago but still you know the whole family of hers was killed by one particular man and he got out of prison a couple of years ago and she finds that very upsetting to think that the person that murdered her three children is now walking the streets you know she has to live with what happened for all of her life and obviously her three children lost their entire lives and and that's the example of where she she says for her recollection of the case there was no premeditation and uh, so it, it, that kind of case wouldn't be captured another case people might remember from the news relatively recently is the terrible case of arthur labinjo hughes uh, a young boy who suffered terribly at the hands of his uh, father and and uh, his partner his partner was convicted of of murdering him and she got 29 years Again, that's a long time, but as I said, I think it should be the rest of your life. And my constituents who contacted me at the time of that case, they often felt the same way. And the judge in that case said again that there wasn't any premeditation. So that kind of very disturbing, cruel treatment of a child and murder, again, is not going to be captured by this change in the law. And I think that's that's a real disappointment. What do we do about it in your in your view? How do we sort of widen the net to, in, it, to try and include more offenders that you think ought to be getting whole life tariffs well the to keep in mind with sentencing uh, the government never sets concrete absolutes with sentencing so their guidelines their starting points and judges tend to follow them but they always have the freedom if if the if the guidelines set out 
just doesn't fit what's happened. So with it keeping that caveat so that, you know, I've got some confidence that if it really doesn't fit the circumstances, it won't be used, I would get rid of that significant premeditation requirement in, in what we've done in Parliament. So that actually the default position is that if you murder a child, whether it's premeditated or not, you should expect to spend the rest of your life in prison. That will require legislation, it will require time in Parliament. So I guess it's one of my jobs as an MP is to make the case for that, persuade the government, persuade ministers to make the time and make that change. And I think that would be a good change. It would leave judges still with that flexibility if there was something particular about a case where they really, really, really felt very strongly that it wasn't appropriate to use that whole life order. Um, they wouldn't have to, but it, it shows what Parliament wants. And I think on this Parliament reflects the will of the people in my experience on this issue. I'm interested in what got you involved in campaigning on this issue in the first place. Was there a particular incident? I know you mentioned you spent some time as a volunteer police officer. What was it that sort of experience that got you interested in in this in the first place? Yeah, it was that experience that generally got me interested in crime. And actually, my, my father was a policeman um, when I was growing up, so I already had an interest there. And, and the general thing I started to feel about the legal system, and again, a lot of my constituents agree with me, is when it comes to serious crimes, whether that's child murder or, or, or otherwise, I don't think our justice system often enough delivers uh, justice. And to me, yes, the prison service and the justice system should be about rehabilitating people and protecting the public. Those are important things. But I think victims of crime and their families want to feel like people, you know, justice is served, so to speak, that the people that commit crimes against them, murder or assault or rape or um, burgle their homes or, or mug them on the street, whatever it might be, that people are punished appropriately for that. And I just don't think often enough um, that's the case. I mean, people might remember uh, the last Labour government brought in automatic halfway release. So people got out half of their sentence anyway, typically. And we've changed that again as this government. This government's brought in two thirds release now uh, so that for those more serious offenders, they don't get out automatically halfway, they get out after two thirds. Again, you know, I, I think most people I meet want people to serve their full sentence. The argument often made is that, well, it helps keep people to behave themselves in prison. It helps get them to engage with the, the systems that we used to try and discourage them from committing crime again. But my argument would be that if they're not doing that, then keep them in longer, not that you let them out early. So we've made progress in regard to this and other offences. There are other offences, child cruelty we changed this year so that in theory you can get a life sentence. I'm not saying this government hasn't gone a long way in this regard and it's building 10,000 more prison places to accommodate that. But... I still think in my experience, it falls very short. Most people, when they see people in the news who've committed serious crimes, don't seem to think that they get the offence, the, the time in prison that they deserve to represent that. And in fact, some people, you know, you can burgle someone's house in this country, you can break into another person's home, and sometimes even they don't go to prison. You know, just, we fall very short, in my, in my opinion. Now, I was interested in uh, a claim that you made during the Westminster Hall debate that was picked up in, in some reports that there's a what you described as an intellectual snobbery towards people who think that longer sentences serve justice. And I guess you were talking about the fact that your, your views on this matter are shared by lots of your constituents. But do you think you're not at risk of sort of writing off the legitimate concerns that some people have about whole life tariffs, you know, that they're not a deterrent potentially and that there's no prospect of rehabilitation for people who know that they're never going to get out of prison. I mean, it, it, it's not a completely black and white argument, is it? That There are nuanced arguments that can be made on the other side as well. 
Yeah, and I think the point I would make is that, you know, on the Justice Select Committee and the organisations that are out there and the campaigns that are out there, they all tend to be about the rehabilitation and the release. And, and of course, that's a really valid argument to make. And that's something that we should listen to, particularly to lower level offenders, less serious crime, that we should be able to early on intervene, help rehabilitate people. Of course, that's important. I think we'd be crazy to not pay any attention to that. But when it comes to the most serious offenders, what comes first for me is how the victim feels and how their family feels. And if, if, if we can bring them small comfort by having someone punished properly, then that should be our priority. I, I'll use another example. Your listeners might remember the terrible murder of Sarah Everard by the um, policeman, a really horrific crime that's sparked a whole debate about how we uh, better protect women and girls and hold people to account for their behaviour. Her family released a statement after her killer was sentenced to a whole life order. So he was one of these very unusual, never going to get out um, sentences. Now, the judge gave him one of those because he said the use of the warrant card, the use of his status as a policeman was so incredibly serious that, that it was appropriate to give him a whole life order. And the, the family of Sarah Everard said that the fact that he was never going to get out of prison was their was a sole comfort to them. It was one thing that made them feel a little bit better out of all the horrendous stuff that happened with Sarah being killed and how that feels for them. Um, now, I don't think that that was because he was a policeman. I, I could be wrong, but I imagine they would have felt exactly the same if, if Sarah had been kidnapped and murdered in the brutal way that she was, even if it wasn't a policeman that did it. And again, my experience, most people that suffer one of these horrendous crimes would prefer to see the person that did it locked up longer. And I think that should be such a central part of our justice system, because at the end of the day, the justice system is there to deliver justice on behalf of the public. It's not separate from the public. The, the individual decisions that the judges make are independent decisions, but the justice system and the judges that sit within it are there to deliver justice on behalf of the British public. And I just don't think we do that often enough. So you're going to be in the course of the next weeks and months trying to change the minds and influence your colleagues in parliament to try and get them to back the changes that you want and get that significant premeditation element taken out of the uh, of the law as it as it stands yes and I'll, I'll be lucky if it's just weeks and months i think it may take even longer than that it could be years that i have to um keep raising this issue i think that you know i'm i'm making the argument not only is it the right thing to do in my view not only would our constituents welcome it when it comes to politics, you know, we've made a promise to people. We said in our manifesto that the people that commit child murder would get a whole life order. That's what we said. We didn't have in the manifesto small print saying only if it's significantly premeditated. And so I think we're going to be left having to explain to the public the next time there is a high profile killing of a child and the person more likely than not doesn't get a whole life order because more likely than that it won't be significantly premeditated they're not going to get that we'll have to explain that and i just think we won't be able to give a, a decent explanation for that and i think it's better that we make that change so we can deliver what we said we were going to in our manifesto as i said we've, we've done great things when it comes to law and order i've never been more happy with a government um, than i am with this current one when it comes to law and order issues but you know i feel we're so far away from where we should be it seems that there's still a lot to do Sure. Now, I was just going to ask you about uh, a couple of other local things while I've got you on, uh, Kieran, if that's okay. Uh, Crew in your constituency, obviously, is one of the places hoping to be named the headquarters of the new Great British Railways. I know you've been campaigning for that to happen. Uh, you're up against York and Doncaster and Newcastle and a couple of other places. Obviously, it would be a great feather in the cap for Crew if it were to get that status. But you'll have seen reports, I'm sure, which suggest that the whole idea of Great British Railways, which was dreamed up by 
Grant Shapps when he was Transport Secretary might, might not go any further. It might be about to be ditched by the government. Is, is, is that a, a worry for you and, and other sort of local leaders and crew? Well, there's nothing concrete. Um, you know, there's a lot that you see in the papers that doesn't turn out to be true. So, I, you know, I tend to... Uh, pay less attention to that than I do about what the government actually says about something. Uh, you know, I've been meeting with the Transport Secretary and Rail Ministers to press the case for um, crew getting the GBR headquarters um, as recently as this week. Uh, so, of course, I'll be disappointed if, if they've made a decision not to move ahead with that. But at the moment, all that is is speculation. And I'm just, I always tend to focus on the concrete stuff that I can influence. Sure, that's fair enough. And a final general question to finish on. You're setting, sitting on a pretty healthy 8,500 uh, seat majority or vote majority from 2019 in Crewe and Nantwich. But obviously the polls nationally for the Conservatives are not looking great at all. And, uh, you know, it's been report- quite a lot of reports that your fellow Conservative MPs are not overly happy with Liz Truss's performance. I mean, is she the the woman who's going to get you out of the difficult polling position you're in at the moment? Are you, are you, are you still backing her as, as leader of the Conservative Party? Well, polling, you know, polling comes and goes. Uh, governments are popular and unpopular at different times. Uh, as a backbench MP, you know, I tend to focus um, dead centre on what are the local things I can get done in my constituency. You've mentioned GBR. We've also got what's called a town dealing crew, so £22.9 million pounds to spend in the local area. We're putting ourselves forward for an investment zone. So there's plenty to keep me busy beyond speculating on on polls. Um, uh, you know, the, the Prime Minister has accepted that we could have and should have done things uh, differently when it comes to the, the budget. I know the government's in listening mode. Uh, I think it needs to stay in listening mode because actually us as backbenchers on the ground, we're very good at feeding back on what our constituents tell us about these issues. And what are they? What are your constituents saying about about this? Presumably well, they're not. I think they're not what the government is focused on on getting things done for them in their areas. And I think, as the prime minister said, the discussions about top rate of tax. There are arguments to be made about how cutting it generates more revenue, etc. But actually, you know, that wasn't a major concern of my constituents, and it's a bit of a distraction. And we need to focus on getting things done. Uh, as MPs, we've been been having regular meetings with ministers and their message to us is how can we help you get things done in your area and I think that's that's refreshing and that's what I'll, I'll carry on focusing on. Dr Kevin Mullen, MP for Crew and Nantwich, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at the Northern Agenda co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach it's presented by me rob parsons and it's produced by daniel j mccoughlin if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the northern agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts including apple and spotify also check out the other laudable podcasts see you next week bye-bye